So if this is uh, one of your first uh, times with us, uh, just to, I, I want to share what we're doing right now. So we are actually uh, just in the second week of a new sermon series. Uh, we, over to, what we're doing this uh, coming um, over the next few weeks into uh, to Thanksgiving, we are looking at the book of uh, Colossians. And this sermon series, we, we are calling it Life Reimagined Through Jesus. And in the book of Colossians, uh, very specifically, Paul is writing to a young church that is uh, getting bored with Jesus. And that is because they have been fed a various versions of, of half Christianity, and they're looking to return to their old way of life. But so how what Paul is doing in this book of Colossians is that he is fighting for these people by giving them a very beautiful vision of life with God through Jesus Christ. He, and he is seeking to help us reimagine what our lives look like when Jesus is the king of the universe. And so today we're going to be looking at uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. I'm, I'm reading um, from the ESV, and you can uh, follow along on the uh, words projected on the wall or in your worship guide. So this is uh, Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. Let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's Word. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. And Father, we ask that in this, in this moment you would be with us and that your spirit would be at work in our hearts so that we would be shaped more into your son, Jesus Christ. That our hearts would truly receive your word. So Father, work in our heart and be with us now that we would listen to you and receive your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now, years ago, a pastor friend of mine was doing college ministry at the University of Maryland, and he had a, a young man, a senior, who was in his uh, ministry, in his group, and this uh, senior guy uh, was a lac lacrosse player, and he was uh, dating this uh, young woman ever since their, their high school days. And they were actually do almost really doing the impossible. They were showing that a long-distance relationship could, could actually happen in college because she was a junior at the University of North Carolina, and it just so happened that she also played lacrosse. But one time, uh, this uh, young man, he had a, a conversation with her friend's dad that really confused him. So he came up to my, my pastor friend, uh, who was really mentoring him through some things. And, and he said uh, to him, like, hey, like my girlfriend and I, like, she's awesome, she's godly, uh, she's funny, we have a bazillion things in common, like we even play lacrosse, this is great. But I have a question. Should I break up with her or should I propose to her? And my friends like looked at him and like he's met, he met this gal many times. He saw them uh, live life together. And he's like, uh, it's like, are you an idiot? 
Like it was just that obvious to everyone uh, around him uh, who, who knew both these people really well. And, and that, that's just his response. Like, are you an idiot? And I started off with this like funny and rather comical story because our lives are actually full of moments like that. When we feel trapped, where we are unsure of what to do, and we're just like, How, what do I do in this moment? Our lives are actually full of those moments. And the, the truth is, like sometimes the answer is obvious to others, and, and other times the, the answer is not obvious. But if we would use a biblical word to really describe what living looks like in those moments, the, the biblical word is wisdom. That wisdom is actually knowing how to live. And the problem is, is that we actually don't know how to live. And in this, these verses here, Paul is giving us a vision of human flourishing where wisdom is really at the center of that. But he also shows us how we can receive wisdom and what life looks like when we are living wisely. In other words, like what Paul is, is telling us here in this, is, in this text is that wisdom is actually thrive, is vital to thriving and flourishing. If we're going to flourish in this life, if we're going to thrive, then we need to know what to do. We need to, be able, we need to understand the situations we're in. We need to just grow in our knowledge. And that's actually what Paul is addressing. And so if you, uh, as we look at this text today, I want, us to, I want to look at one very simple idea. And the idea is this, that God wants you to be full of him so that you can flourish. God wants you to be full of him so that you can flourish. And the truth is, when we are, we are full of God, our lives are going to be noticeably different. And one writer said this about living differently as a Christian. She said this, that one reason why people outside of Christian spirituality are not attracted to it is because we Christians do not demonstrate a way of life different enough to warrant belief. Everyone in our culture has too much to do, so why would anyone bother with becoming a student of Jesus or going to church on Sundays if Christians do not demonstrate that following Jesus is a better way to live? And that's exactly what, what Paul's point is, that following Jesus is a better way to live because following Jesus brings us access to wisdom. It brings us access to God. It brings, it, life with Jesus actually in, empowers us to flourish. And so that's God's design. But what does that look like? And so if you are an outline person, uh, we're looking at two things, fullness and flourishing, fullness and flourishing. That's our outline for today. And again, the whole idea of this text is that God wants you to thrive and flourish. So God wants you to be full of him so you can flourish. So let's first consider fullness. And this is in verse uh, 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so Paul right here is praying for these Christians to be full of what? Of God's of the knowledge of God's will. And this is not just knowledge ab about God. Like, that's actually incredibly impersonal. It's, this is not knowledge about God. This is actually knowing God personally and intimately as a friend. And sadly, this is, not, this is actually something that we Christians can often trip over. 
because we ourselves may practice a halfway Christianity. It's possible for, to think that the goal of Christianity is merely to know about God. And it's one thing, and this is actually one thing that I hear fairly often as a pastor, that I hear that uh, you find reading your Bible to be boring. And that's actually very easy and very understandable to, to, to find yourself in. Because if you gr- have grown up in a church that emphasizes biblical literacy, that emphasizes just knowing the Bible, it's likely that you feel like you don't learn anything when you read the Bible. It's like, hey, I've heard all this before. But in those moments, at what, what we do and, and what I have done as well is that we keep looking to the activity of reading the Bible or to the activity of praying as an experience that those activities should fill our spiritual life. But the truth is, what Paul is praying is that we should be full of God specifically knowledge of God's will. And so the way that we experience God is by seeing his kingdom created in our hearts and created in our lives. And so when we see God's kingdom uh, being manifested and created all around us, we will experience God and we will see a recovery of his original intentions for our lives, for ourselves, and for our work. But we can only do that when we know his will. And what Paul is getting at here is what one commentator on this passage said, and this is what this commentator said, that a man may be a master of theology but a failure at living. And Paul is wants us, and he is praying for us, he's praying for these Christians in, in Colossae to be masters at living. But to be a master at living, it requires knowledge of God's will. But Paul goes on to explain what knowledge of God's will actually looks like. He goes on to say that we would be full of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But, and there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom and understanding. The, 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 these th- things are, are, are different. Like, so if you, let's think about the word wisdom, which I mentioned a few moments ago. And there are several books in the entire uh, Old Testament that are dedicated to the subject of wisdom. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And each one of these books, with their unique emphasis, with their unique perspectives, is all about wisdom. And these books, these writers are helping us to live skillfully, to help us to know how to live. But so wisdom is knowing what to do and how to do it. That's what wisdom is. And so Paul is praying for us to have knowledge of God's will and to know how to live and and when to do it. So that's wisdom. But that's different than understanding Understanding is the ability to pull everything together. It's the ability to comprehend. And so Paul is not just praying for the Colossians to be able to comprehend life. He's he's praying for them to be able to comprehend God. And this is uh, a challenge. Let's just be honest. This is a challenge because uh, to use uh, one, one word that Scripture uses to describe God, God is incomprehensible. But we're also told that we can actually comprehend God. 
But just to give you uh, an understanding of the, of the challenge that is, just imagine taking all the oceans in, in the world, okay, and trying to put them in one swimming pool. It can't happen. Like, it literally cannot happen. And so it's one thing to, 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 for you to go swimming in the Pacific Ocean. It's another thing for you to go uh, swimming in the Caribbean or the North Irish Sea. They're all vastly different from one another. And that is a, a, a metaphor, a picture of what it's like for us to know God. We are creatures. He is the creator. He is incomprehensible, yet we can still grasp him. But there's... a but, it shows us just that we will never truly comprehend everything about God. And, but so Paul, in this prayer, he's praying for them to be able to understand, to be able to comprehend God. But he's also showing us that there's another thing going on here. And this is, there's something else going on in the subtext here. Like this, the words that Paul uses are actually very, very deliberate. And like knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And like this is actually something that you would only uh, really catch if you like really, really, really know your your Bibles. And this is for like pastors like myself. This is so obscure. It's pretty cool, but still very obscure that we need to like learn. We need to have word studies and like books to tell us these things. But I find this fascinating because there's like one very specific moment in the Old Testament when God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He, it's the entire Exodus, so the book of Exodus. He rescues his people from slavery. He brings them into freedom to, and to uh, live a life that is truly liberating. And as he meets them on Mount Sinai, he gives them this law, like, and he tells them how to live. But he also says, you know what? I want you to build a house for me. I want you to build a tabernacle, a place that we can meet to worship and to have life together. Okay? And so that's the context. But there's one man very specifically, Bazalel. And Bazalel, God actually comes upon him, fills him with knowledge and wisdom and understanding and all workmanship so that this tabernacle would be built. In other words... God comes upon this man to build this temple for God to meet his people. And friends, that's actually what Paul's praying for you. That God would give you all knowledge and all wisdom and understanding so that your life can be pleasing to him. Where your life, where he can come and actually live and reside and abide in you because you are the temple of God. You, God abides in you and lives in you. And that is the picture that Paul is giving us here. And when we pull all these things together, the picture that we see is that God is actually saying that he wants to live in you. The, the language that Paul's using is that we would be full of God and that our lives would act, where our lives, our bodies would be his temple. And so the picture that we have is that this is actually, the, this is a necessary that thing that needs to happen if we're going to live lives of flourishing. That God has to, we have to be full of God's knowledge and God has to live within us so that, and this is the, where Paul goes, verse 10, to, live, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And like, so if we are full of God's knowledge, if we have all spiritual wisdom, if we have all spiritual understanding, we will be able to live lives pleasing unto God. 
We will actually have the skill to know how to live. We won't just be a master of theology. We will be masters at living. And here's an here's a illustration to, to really see this in action. And so I, I'm using a friend's uh, illustration that I heard a few years ago, and it has always stuck with me. But a few years ago, I think like five years ago now, the TV show The Affair uh, debuted on Showtime. And the show explores the psychological and emotional impact of couples cheating on one another. And culturally, cheating on one's boyfriend or girlfriend or one's spouse is, is morally wrong. That's where our culture is at with this. And scripture is pretty clear that adultery, sex outside of marriage, is sinful and contrary to God's design. But what the, the point that I want to pull out from this TV show is that the TV show explores when an affair really begins. It doesn't begin with a, di- a dinner and a night out. It begins when you begin to live your life around that other person. So if that other person says, oh, hey, that's a nice shirt, and you start wearing that shirt all the time around them, or, or where you'd make life decisions to please the other person, that is when the, the affair begins. And see, when we are, have the knowledge of God's will in our lives, when we, when we have, are full of all spiritual wisdom and understanding, we'll be able to look at our lives and see those red flags. We'll see the consequences of our decisions. We'll know that the, the, our decisions can bring devastation or life to us. We'll, we will know that if we are in a toxic situation and we need to get out of, or that if, if we're going to hurt others or more. And so that's the, what the picture that Paul is giving us, is that if we are full of, God's, of the knowledge of God's will, then we will be masters at living. In other words, that we will be, uh, we'll, we'll know how to flourish. And perhaps at this point, this is feeling like idealism. It's something that's untenable, unattainable, and perhaps even a burden. Because like all that we have so far is like, hey, that we, it's possible for us to know how to live. But we're actually unable to live that way. So perhaps it may feel like a burden this way. And if I stop right now, all we have is a, a version of Christianity. We have a half Christianity. Because a life pleasing to God at this point would be completely dependent upon our work. It would be completely dependent upon our energy. And that's a false teaching of moralism. But Jesus brings good news. And Paul dives in with good news right here in verse 11. Okay, And this brings us to our second point of flourishing. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy. And so what we see right here is that at the heart of Christianity is human flourishing. And culturally speaking, if you listen, listen to therapists, uh, how they use the word flourishing is having a satisfying life. But what does that mean? What does satisfaction look like? Well, Augustine of Hippo, he was a North African theologian, perhaps the greatest theologian in the history of the church. This is what he says. God is the only source to be found of any good things, but especially of those which make a man good and those which will make him happy. Only from him do they come into a man and attach themselves to a man. 
In other words, our lives, we can only be satisfied when our lives center on God because He is the source of all good things and He is the source of all things that can make, empower us and make us good. And so the claim throughout the entire biblical story from Genesis through Revelation is this. If you want the good life, if you want to have the satisfying life, you can only have it through Jesus Christ. And so in other words, God is for your joy. God is for your flourishing. In fact, like the very first miracle that Jesus did was a wedding at Cana. It was an obscure wedding in the middle of nowhere. Like Jesus did all his miracles, and some of them were massive. He fed 3,000, 5,000 people. Like he did very public miracles, but this is the very first miracle that he did was at an obscure wedding. And you have to ask the question, why? Why did Jesus begin his ministry? Why did he show the first sign of the kingdom at this wedding, an obscure wedding? But the miracle where he turned water to wine, literally what Jesus did was restock the bar. That is literally what Jesus did. And what we see from his first miracle is that Jesus' kingdom is a place of life and joy. Jesus is for our joy. That is the central claim throughout all of Scripture. And Paul, this is why Paul prays for us to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Because what we, the picture that Paul gives us is that not only is it possible for us to have, be, to have this fullness of God's knowledge, of, to, to be, have all the spiritual wisdom and, and understanding, we can actually be empowered to grow in this knowledge. But it's not our energy. It's not our strength. It's not our doing. It's actually God's work in us. That's the picture that we are given here. This, look at verses 12 and 13 and 14. That giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of, of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, what we see right here, our energy, our efforts, our, our works are not the things that earn us an inheritance with God. The scripture is clear. God qualified us for an inheritance. God did something for us. And so all these things are given to us because we are saints. Like That is actually a word that Paul uses to describe us here. And like... Going back all the way to uh, verse 2, like Paul is writing to the saints and the brothers in Colossae. And here in, in our verses, in verse 12, who has qualified you to share, in the, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul is calling every Christian a saint. And when we think about the word saints, we think about it in, a, in, a, in an idea that where someone is above us. Someone is, is far better than we are. It's up here and we're down here. That's the perspective that we have of saints. But biblically speaking, saints means holy ones. Saints mean being set apart. And the reality is every single one of us is holy because God has qualified us Already, God has made us holy. So the question that we need to ask right now is, how has God qualified us? What has God done for us right now? 
And the reality is that Jesus is the one who qualifies us. Jesus is the one who rescues us. Like redemption, another word for redemption is rescue. And so Jesus qualified us by living a perfect life. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death that we should have died. And so when Jesus died upon the cross, he freed us from the penalty of sin. He freed us, he, he freed us to live a life under his reign instead. And that, that's what happened through his resurrection. And as Jesus was raised from the dead, that same power that brought him from the grave, back from the grave, is actually at work in your life as well. That's the picture that Paul is giving us here. He is praying for God's power to be working in your life so that you can live a life that is pleasing to him. And it's God's power that is working in you to see that happen. So the reality is that's a fact. This is something that we can't stop. This is something that we can't prevent. He's alive and he's at work in you. And because you are now under his reign. Like look at verse uh, 13. He delivered us from the, the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So in other words, we live with a new king, with a new leader that over our lives whom we follow. And that's freeing because this kingdom is, is a kingdom of redemption. It is a, a kingdom of rescue. It is a king, kingdom of forgiveness. And that word right there, forgiveness, is, a, is actually a word that can easily be misunderstood or misconstrued. So let me just uh, explain what forgiveness is. And I also, I want to explain what this a new word is of righteousness is as well. Here's the illustration. You go, in, you go to the bank. Uh, it's a bank where you have uh, all your debt, your house mortgage, your car, your car loans, student loans. Uh, and the reality is in your, you, your, all your credit cards are maxed out. And your bank accounts are overdrawn. And so you go in and you sit down with a clerk and, and you, you, you share your situation and so forth. And the clerk looks upon you in, in pity and, and sighs and says, you know, I'll, I'll cancel all your debt. Done. That's forgiveness. That is forgiveness. But you leave the bank. You walk back to your car. There's two truths about your life, Okay. The two truths are this, is that, one, you're bankrupt. That's one truth. Another truth is that your bank never wants to see you again. That's the second truth. It never wants to see you again. And if that's your only understanding of forgiveness, this is actually how you're going to, to relate to God. That you are, you're, living life, you're living your life as a bankrupt person, and you're thinking, you know what? God never wants to see me again because he has just forgiven me that way. If that's your understanding of forgiveness, that is not a full picture of it, actually. Because what happens with God is that is this. Say the CEO of the bank sees you walking out and runs after you and pursues you and says, you know what, there's been a terrible mistake. Come back with me to my office. And like you can imagine if you're in this moment, you'd be panicking right now. But you come back to the CEO, to CEO's office. You sit down with him, and he says, you know what, I'm, on, I'm going to go over and sign the bank and all our assets over to you now. And in fact, there's an artist downstairs in our lobby with a canvas that's going to paint your portrait and hang it in the lobby. You know what, that right there 
is righteousness. You see, forgiveness with God isn't just like our debts being canceled. It's actually where we are actually given an inheritance. And that's what Paul is going here. That he has qualified us for an inheritance. And we have this forgiveness. And so like the life that God is actually bringing us into is where he is bringing us into his family where we are his children, where we are brothers and sisters with one another, and we can look to God and say, he is our father. And friends, this is liberating news. This is freeing because we do not qualify ourselves. We do not qualify ourselves. No one is here today because any of us is good or competent. We are here for two very simple reasons. We are a mess, and God is gracious. You are here because Jesus qualified you because he loves you. There's another famous theologian by the name of Martin Luther. He said this, and it's in a form of a prayer, actually. May a merciful God preserve me from a Christian church in which everyone is good. I want to be in a church of the faint-hearted, the failed, the feeble, and the, the, the failing, the alien. I want to be in a church that believes in the forgiveness of sins. You see, friends, we strive to be a church that believes in the forgiveness of sins. We, the, the vision that Paul's given us is that our only reason, the only reason, the only claim that we can possibly have to come before God is because of what Jesus has done to qualify us. And the good news is that Jesus has qualified us for the entire inheritance and to a life with God. And so we strive to be a church for the, the faint-hearted, the failed, the feeble, and the alien who believe in the forgiveness of sins. We strive to be a church for you because, friends, that describes every single one of us. And God is a loving Father who invites us into his family, to his table. Let's pray.